filled with the Spirit. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. We're going to cover verses 5 through 9. In chapter 5, verse 21, he said we were to submit to one another in the fear of God. And he began with the husband and wife relationship, <clears throat> the submission of a husband and wife to him. But as the husband's role, he was to love his wife as Christ loved the church. In the wife's role, she was to submit to her husband as the church submits herself unto Christ. And then the children were to obey their parents in the Lord. And now we're going to look at employees and employers. All again having to do with being, having a spirit-filled relationship. Because we cannot do the things that God has called us to do without the spirit of God. It's, you know, again, to be a husband and wife, you need the spirit of God. Again, to um, do, carry out the roles that God's given us, we need the spirit of God. The children need uh, the spirit of God in, in their role, and the parents need the children of God, uh, the, the spirit of God to be a parent. And that's probably not something that you're going to find, or you might, may think is not very interesting, the, the relationship between the employer and employee. Now, in Paul's day, there was bond servants and masters. But again, it was the, the, the employee with the employer. Probably didn't want to be talking about work this morning when you come to church, but uh, it, it has a lot of benefits, and, and God, it's in God's Word. That means it's very important because there's nothing in God's Word that doesn't matter or is fill-in but something that God wanted us to know. So I entitled the message this morning, Spirit-Filled Masters and Servants. So Paul is now talking to Christian bondservants and masters or employers and employees. Christian slaves played a big part in this society in Paul's day. And there were several million slaves in the Roman Empire at this time. And because many slaves and owners had become Christians, the early church now had to deal truthfully with the subject of master and slave relations. Paul was a prisoner in Rome. His friend Philemon was in Colossae. And the human link between Paul and Philemon was a runaway slave named Onesimus. Now the details aren't clear, but it seems that Onesimus robbed his master, and then took off to Rome, hoping to hide in the big city and get lost. Nobody would find him. But I love God because in the providence of God, Onesimus finds Paul, and he gets saved. Now what? Now what does he do? He says, I robbed my former master. I've taken off to hide. Now I get saved what do I do now? What's my role now? Should, es should Onesimus stay with Paul, who needed help in his ministry? But what about my responsibility as a slave to my master? Do I go back to him now in Colossae? You see, the law allowed a master to execute a rebellious slave. But Philemon now was a Christian. And if he forgave Onesimus, what would the other masters and slaves think? So if he punished him, if Philemon punished Onesimus, 
how would that affect his testimony? You know, he was in a tough situation. Now, what Paul says here doesn't condemn nor condone slavery, and we'll look at that in a little more detail as we go further. Instead, it tells masters and slaves how to live with each other now that they're Christians in Christian households. In Paul's day, women, children, and slaves had very few rights. But it was different in the church. They had freedoms and privileges that they didn't have in society. And Paul tells husbands and parents and masters to be caring. Here in verses 5 through 9, Paul gives his last explanation on the principles of being filled with the Spirit and submitting to one another in the fear of God relating it to relationships between slaves and masters or employer and employees, spirit-filled work relationships. Now today there's a lot of conflict between employer and employee relations. We see them often going out on strike. You know, and we see that currently happening now. Human resources or personnel have a tough job trying to deal with both sides of the issue. Each side wants more for less. At the end of the year, you know, and again if all of your employer or most have been and have been at one time. Uh, at the end of the year, companies usually will meet, all right? And, and, and they'll meet with their employees to tell them how well or how not so well the company did with its earnings. But the director will get up of operations or the VP and he says, hey guys, it was a great year. Our net profit is, and he'll give the amount. And then they're told the employees, and you're going to get a cost of living increase of 2 to 3%. You just said you had great earnings, great profit this year, and we're just going to get a measly 2 or 3% uh, cost of living increase? Because they would say, hey, well, you know, if it wasn't for us, you wouldn't have made any earnings. You wouldn't have made a profit. Well, you see, inflation and the cost of materials is going up and, and you know, all of the things that the business says why they can't give you more. And, you know, the people want a bigger percent in their cost of living earnings. So the employer wants more work done with fewer people in less time with minimal wages and, and, and benefits. The employee wants just the opposite. So again, it, it's not hard to see that part of the real problem is greed on both sides. And the sin of greed is the main reason for inf uh, inflation going up every year in most parts of the world. When everybody wants more, prices have to go up to pay for higher wages and profits. And as prices go up and you get less for your buck, people start arguing, hey, I need a raise. Or I need to make a bigger profit to survive, to cover the cost of inflation. And America is probably the greediest nation of all. Everyone wants more for less. And it never ends. Let me read you a few scriptures of what the Bible says about the topic here. Philippians 4.11, Paul said, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 1 Timothy 6.8-10 And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and, in, and into many foolish harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Hebrews 3, I'm sorry, Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Luke 3, 14. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, that is Jesus, saying, And what shall we do? So that he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse them falsely, or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. And we'll look at this verse a little further too, on, further on in the study. What he's saying is, Don't murmur because you don't have more. I have all that God wants me to have. If he wants me to have more, he'll give it to me. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But he knows me. You know, I wonder what I would do if I had lots of money. You know, and, and you know, we, we can get into a place where, you know, we, we do things that we don't think we would do. But God knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. It's discontentment with what you have that makes men harsh. It's discontentment with what you have that makes men harsh and harmful. People, people who think they never have enough won't think twice about how to get it or cheating others. James tells us in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. It's a rule to all servants to be content with their, with their wages. Because when you're not, you open yourself to a lot of temptations. And it's wisdom to make the best of the situation that you're in. The remedy for covetousness is gratefulness. Thank you, Lord, for, for, for what I have, for what you've given me. Being thankful for what you do have rather than resenting what you don't have. So how do we fix this problem? The answer has to start with God's answer. And that is salvation through Jesus Christ and the empowerment of his Holy Spirit. In every part of human life, God's plan is one of authority and submission. And these two principles, authority and submission, are the basis of biblical labor relations. To avoid chaos and rebellion, somebody has to lead and everybody else has to follow. The word bondservants that we'll see in a minute, in verse 5, means literally slaves. Bondservants. Now, the bondservant in biblical times was the lowest uh, uh, level of slave you could be in that time. They were to obey their earthly masters according to the flesh. Servants are not to serve with eye service, Paul says. One eye on the clock and the other eye looking for the boss. They're not to be men pleasers. In other words, we, we use the word brown nosers. They're not to be, you know, uh, men pleasers. Service is to be done as a servant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Christians have, have natural responsibility as a worker or employer. And this employer-employee relationship in Paul's day, it was an even greater division than it is now. It was really a master and slave. Now remember, this whole subject started back in chapter 5, uh, verse 21. That is, submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, 
Studying this topic this morning, it sounds good and it makes good sense. But here's the thing. What are you going to do tomorrow when you go to work? Christian workers working for Christian owners won't need a, won't need a labor boss to go to the employer and to tell them what to do. Probably half of the 120 million people living in the Roman Empire were slaves. Christianity never attacked the evil of slavery. Instead, it affected the slave in his humiliation and disgrace of being a slave and lifted him up, reassuring him of his liberty in Jesus Christ. The gospel eventually freed men and women from slavery physically and mentally. Huge members of slaves came to Jesus Christ as we read in Romans chapter 16 and Paul called many of them by name. Bond servants indicate subjection and usually bondage. And in Paul's day, most slaves had no legal rights. The bond servant, and that's what Christians, as servants of God, we are called bond servants. That means we, had no, we have no right, no voice, nothing. We are at the beck and call of Jesus Christ. He is my master. In Paul's day, like I said, they had, mostly had no rights, no voice. They were mistreated. They were abused, treated like property rather than people. Slaves were bought, sold, traded, used, and discarded like a peaceable furniture. Now, even though scripture doesn't speak against slavery, and that's why I know you may have heard it in the past that, that, you know, that Christianity condones slavery. It doesn't because it goes against the very nature of who God is in his love and his, and his treatment of others and, and just respect. So, it, what it does, and we read it in Exodus chapter 21, 26, it clearly speaks against the kidnapping of anyone, taking anyone for the purpose of making him or her a slave. Listen to Exodus 21, 16. God said, He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. The New Testament has over and over again led to the elimination of it, of its abusive tendencies. You see, where the love of Jesus Christ is, where the love of Jesus is lived in the power of the Holy Spirit, unfairness, unfair barriers, and relationships are sooner or later broken down. As the Roman Empire fell apart and finally crumbled, the cruel, abusive system of slavery crumbled with it. And it had a lot to do with the influence of Christianity. Now, again, the New Testament teachings does not focus on reforming or restructuring structuring man's methods or systems. In other words, the gospel didn't come and wasn't meant to, to restructure or reform methods or systems. I mean, look at the systems and methods we have. They're still a mess. Because man is, in the, is doing the reforming. Man is doing the restructuring. It's man's so-called wisdom that messes everything up. You know, and that's what's really the root cause of human problems. It's men's so-called wisdom without God's input. And here's the problem. As I've said before, the heart of the problem is always the problem of the heart. You want to change things in society, don't attack what's wrong. Attack the heart in the sense of it needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not going to change nothing until a man's heart is changed. That's the bottom line. Because as Jeremiah said, a man's heart is wicked, desperately wicked. We don't even know it. 
You know, you hear people say, oh, I could never do something like that. You hear people say, oh, they, they, they would never do something like that. And then you hear them say, I, I can't believe I did that. You leave it. Our hearts are wicked, desperately wicked, Jeremiah said. Who knows it? Only I, God, search the heart. It's a wicked, wicked member of our body. So again, because a man's heart is wicked and because it's wicked, it will corrupt the base, the, the, it will corrupt even the best plans. It will corrupt the best designs and the best systems. And on the other hand, when a man's heart, man's heart is righteous, it will make the worst situations better. If men's sinful hearts aren't changed, they'll find ways uh, to oppress others, no matter whether they're slave or free. On the other hand, spirit-filled believers will have fair and well-balanced relationships with each other. It doesn't matter what system or conditions they live under. Man's basic problems and needs aren't because of their political, social, or economic environment, but spiritual. And that's the thing that Paul is focusing on here, the heart. Because that's the cure-all. All through history, up to today. You know, look at, we're, we're living in the 21st century, and, and, and we, there's been so many advancements in technology and, and, and wisdom. And are we off any better? Are we better off today than have we ever been? We're on the verge of World War III. Thank you, mister. That's not God's doing. That's man's doing. There's so-called wisdom. So again, man's basic problems and needs are, be are not because of, again, their political, social, or economical environment. It's spiritual. That's the thing that Paul's talking about here. All through history, up to today, working people have been oppressed and abused by big business, which really basically boils down to slavery. So Paul's teaching applies to every business owner and every worker. And the only way you can, can obey Paul's command to live in a mutual submission with each other is you have to be spirit-filled. Paul is talking to Christian slaves here, and later he'll talk to Christian masters in verse 9. But he tells them, Paul tells them to conduct themselves. He's talking to the employee. He's telling them to conduct themselves in the right way to have the right outlook and the right attitude and to be committed to God's way which shows that they have a right relationship to God through his son Jesus Christ. Listen to what John the Baptist said in Luke 3. Again, this will change society. This is what will change the world. It's not what party is in office. It's not what president who's running the United States. That will never cure the ills of mankind. People were going and getting baptized after they received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And John was there doing the baptizing. The crowds were coming up to John after they got baptized. Listen to the questions these Christians were now asking after they received Christ and got baptized. One group of people comes up to John the Baptist and says, what should we do? And they're saying, now that we're Christians, what should we do? John said, if you have two shirts... Give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Are people still starving today? Yeah. There's all kinds of massive food drives, food banks, people trying to feed the poor, feed the hungry. It hasn't happened. But if you've got people 
who got saved. And as John said, hey, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, feed those hungry. This world would not be starving today. People would not be hungry because of Jesus Christ. Then it says, even the corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked the teacher, speaking of John the Baptist, what should we do? He said, collect no more taxes than the government requires. Wouldn't that be nice? Be fair. Then another group came up and said, John, what should we do? John replied, and he was, these were the soldiers, don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. If we're going to change society and the ills of society, man's heart has to be changed. Therefore, the importance of us sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing them come to Jesus. That will change the world. Not politics, not the comics environment, not going green, going whatever else you want to do. It's Jesus Christ is the answer to, to the problems in the world. Let's begin now in chapter 6 with verse 5. And Paul says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. And employ, Paul says, is to be obedient. Obedient to his employer. To be obedient means a consistent obedience. An employee is to obey their employer whether he's nice or not, whether he's fair or unfair, whether he gives you a good performance for you or not. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 19. Peter said, You who are slaves must accept the authority of your master with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased with you when you do what you know is right and patiently endure unfair treatment. 1 Peter 2.20 For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? In other words, if you get punished for, for messing up, you know, what's the big deal if you, t- you, know, if you, if you take it patiently? Well, I got it coming. But when you, go, when you do good and suffer... All right, and then you get you know, in trouble for something and you take it patiently. This is commendable before God. All right, I didn't mess up. I got blamed for something that was not my fault. I got punished for it. But Paul says, if you take it patiently, you know, and you just go along with what God says, this is commendable before God. It's a good witness. So whether your boss, he's saying, is a kind man or mean, a believer or not, a Christian employee is to obey him. Be obedient to him because that's God's will. Paul said to Titus in, chapter, in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Bond slaves are to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering or stealing, but showing all good fidelity that they may notice, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. That's how we adorn the gospel, through our behavior. We're a good testimony by the way we behave when things don't go right with us. When we're a good good example. How a believer does his job affects, or reflects, I should say, reflects on his Lord Jesus. No matter who his human master is or his employer is. The way I behave at work reflects on who Jesus is. On my master. Paul said, you know, be obedient to him according to the flesh. This means a Christian employee submits to the authority of his employer. 
The authority-submission relationship is important and it should be and is to be respected. But, on, but it's only temporal. It lasts only in this life. And it doesn't apply to moral and spiritual concerns at any time or under any circumstances. This is the right perspective. <clears throat> he goes on to say in verse 5, to obey with fear and trembling. This speaks of the right attitude. And it's not a fear that causes you to shy away, but it's an attitude of the honor and respect that makes a person willing, that makes a person willing to, to please. You see, if you can't honor and respect your employer, you respect him for the Lord's sake. I'm doing it as unto the Lord. I'm doing it because that's what the Lord wants me to do. I'm doing it because as the Lord, you know, I'm putting myself under this person because that's God's will. Even though men abuse their authority, the principal authority and submission is God-given. So it's always to be honored, just like the, you know, the government. We may not like what they do and what they say, but... God's given them to us, and we're to honor them. Think of it like this. Your workplace is a part of your mission field. It's where you serve the Lord, and he pays you for it. But I don't know if you ever thought of it as your mission field. What an opportunity we have there in the workplace, as long as we're doing it when we can do it, not during working hours. But, you know, I remember going back when I, I used to work in, in a secular workplace that, you know, I had the opportunity to, to lead a lot of people to the Lord. I mean, it was just, it was so wonderful. And, and again, it's, again, it's a mission field. It really is. The whole world's a mission field. But our workplace, we spend a lot of time there. When you do your work carefully and respectfully without murmuring and complaining, it's a great witness to those who don't know Christ. And it's an encouragement to believers. And it's an act of service to God. Notice again in verse 5, Paul says, And do your work with sincerity of heart as to Christ. We're doing it in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Which means to be committed. To make sure it's not phony, but sincere and complete. In all relationships, Paul covered the motivation. The motivation for everything we do should be as unto Christ. That's why I do it. I do the right thing because Jesus wants me to. As Paul said, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. There's my motivation. Wives, submit to your own husbands as the church submits to Christ. There's her motivation. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. There's their motivation. Paul said to the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians 4, 10 through 12, increase more and more that you also aspire to lead a quiet life to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Notice, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside, that is, who don't know the Lord, and that you may lack nothing. The idea is to do the work well that we're given without complaining, without bragging, criticizing how others are doing their work or any other way, in another way, being a pain in the neck to our, to our employer. One of the hardest people I had to supervise was a Christian. It was a 24-hour operation. It had to be, it was a continuous operation. We couldn't take a break and you know, stop production for, you know, an hour or whatever it might be. So we had to have uh, uh, double shifts on breaks. The first, sh uh, the first group would take a, a break first and then the, the, the next day they'd take it second and vice versa. And so I had this one person that, um, you know, at 9 o'clock, 
they would go out and they'd listen to their Bible study on the radio. And so when they had to take the break where they missed that, I would say, no, oh, I, you know, I listen to my Bible study and, you know, I go out there and spend time with the Lord. And I go, yeah, well, you know, I know, but, you know, it's, it's time for you to, you know, this is your day for taking second break, you know, or first break where she would miss the, the, the time. But um, I always get that argument every time I had to, you know, switch the, the shift. But, you know, it, it was, and again, it was a sad witness because there were people watching. And, uh, you know, it's got her Bible and just, you know, but, and that's, that's what Paul is talking about here. You know, it, we, we were to do our work for the right reason. And again, verse 5 says, as to Christ. A Christian's main concern about his job should be to do it well and, and to do it to the glory of God. That is, as to Christ. Am I doing that in the workplace? Am I pleasing the Lord at work? Jesus said, I always do those things that please him. Am I always doing those things that please him? Being filled with the Holy Spirit brings useful results, like being reliable, productive, and a cooperative employee. I'm on time. I'm always there. I, I, I don't abuse my breaks or my lunch times. You know, before I got saved, my attitude was, man, I'm just doing my eight hours and I'm out of here. But when I got saved, God began to minister to me and my attitude changed little by little. And, and then I began to take a whole different view of being there. I said, well, I hope to be here for a while, so I might as well make the best of it. And, and I, I made myself a notebook and I started taking notes and you know, I stopped calling out sick and, you know, when I wasn't really sick and, you know, I, you know, and I just began to say, you know, I'm going to do the best while I'm here. And I know that's what the Lord wanted. And it paid off. So, you know, I, I got promoted and I had a good rapport with management and, you know, and it just it was a good witness. And the Bible tells us in Psalm 75, verse 6 and 7, that exaltation or promotion comes neither from the east or from the west nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. You know, if I want to get promoted, I need to be promotable. You know, and I need to have an attitude that it glorifies God and not complaining and having arguments with the boss. It doesn't mean that I always agreed, but... I had to do all that I had to do because, you know, to, to glorify God. And that was hard sometimes. And sometimes I have to tell you, I blew it. I wasn't a good witness. And whenever a Christian is submissive to the Holy Spirit, his or her accomplishments are as to Christ. Because Christ is both the origin and the goal of his obedience. He or her does everything out of their love for Jesus Christ through his power and for his glory. And to be a good witness, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And again, and that's not easy. That's why we need the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a luxury or an option. He's a necessity. I need him to lead the life that Christ has called me to lead because I cannot do it on my own. And just because your job isn't preaching the gospel or in the mission field or in church ministry, it doesn't make you do what you do any, any, uh, it doesn't make it any less spiritual. 
just because those ministries more directly and obviously represent the Lord's work, God won't call a person into them if they haven't been faithful in whatever other work he's been doing. You see, if you haven't been faithful to the Lord as a truck driver, a salesman, a box boy, a secretary, a receptionist, custodian, whatever it might be, don't expect God to call you to a more noticeable ministry. Because the Lord only appoints people over much who have been faithful over little. Matthew said, in Matthew 25, 21, Jesus said this. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Verse 6. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God, notice, from the heart. A Christian worker doesn't do just what he needs to do to get by. And he doesn't just get busy when the others are looking or when his boss is walking by. That's eye service. He doesn't need to be checked up on because he always does his work to the best of his ability, whether or not anybody else is around. And he works just as hard when he's passed over uh, for a raise or a promotion as when he's being considered for them. He doesn't do a good, uh, a, a good job just to impress other people. He doesn't do a good job just to make himself look good uh, for further opportunities. That's what men pleasers do. He works diligently because it's the will of God and it's the sincere desire of his heart. Verse 7. With good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. You see that? It's doing good service not as to men but as to the Lord. This reemphasizes what Paul said at the end of verse 6. That is with good will. This shows the worker's attitude who doesn't need to be told what to do or to go ahead and, and, and be prodded to do it. When a Christian is where God wants him to be and is obedient to serve as to the Lord, that's the most challenging, productive, and rewarding place to be. Every day should be a day of service to the Lord. And Paul said in Colossians 3.23, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to man. That's the work ethic of the Spirit-filled Christian. Verse 8. Knowing that, whatever, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. A believer does his work diligently for the Lord's sake, with the assurance that whatever good whatever good thing that each one does, they will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. God sees our work. He sees our works, and it will be added to our account. Your employee might not appreciate you or even be aware of the good work that you do. And maybe he doesn't care. Or maybe somebody else gets the credit for what you did. But God sees, God knows, and God rewards. No good thing done in his name and for his glory will go unnoticed and you will receive his blessing. You want man's blessing here or you want the, heavens, the, 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 the Father's blessing in heaven? I'll take the Father's blessing in heaven. God knows, God rewards. Verse 9. Now Paul's going to talk to the masters or the bosses. Verse 9 says, And you, masters, do the same things 
to them, giving up threatening, giving up threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. We are all, we all have masters. We're all under authority, no matter who we are, because we're Christians. Paul now finishes talking to the masters here. Their attitude toward their workers is to basically be the same as the workers' attitude toward them. He says, do the same things to them, your employees, that they are to do to you. Verse 6 said, doing the will of God from the heart. And then verses 7 and 8 explain what that was. A, Christian's employer's, a Christian employer's relationship with his employees should have the same motivation and goal as the Christian worker's relationship to his employer. And that is the desire to obey and the desire to please the Lord. An employer is to use his authority as to the Lord, just like the workers are to submit to the authority of the employer as to the Lord. This shows their mutual submission that Paul began with in chapter 5, verse 21, to one, submit to one another in the fear of God. A Christian employee, an employer's first priority is to do God's will and to show Christ's likeness in everything that he does. His decisions are based on God's standards of righteousness and honesty, trying to show the nature and do the will of his heavenly father in everything that he does. And he deals with his employees based on what's good for them and what's in their best interests as well as what's best for the business. He deals fairly with them because you know what? That's his Lord's will. He treats them with respect because he does, because he does what he does. In what he does, he's respecting and honoring the Lord. So the spirit-filled believer, I'm sorry, the spirit-filled employer is careful to give up threatening. That is, he doesn't use his power. He doesn't use authority unless he has to. He doesn't throw his weight around or lord it over his people that are under his supervision. He's never insulting or inconsiderate. He realizes that his authority has been given to him by God and totally positional and temporary. And the employer or the boss knows that he and his workers are both under God's authority and that their master is not according to the flesh but of the spirit in heaven. The faithful Christian employer knows that he's nothing more than what Jesus called an unprofitable servant and I'm only doing what God has asked me to do. That we are nothing more than an unprofitable servant of Jesus Christ with his employees and he's accountable to the same master. And he also knows that before God, he's not any more important or worthy than the least of his employees because again, with God, there is no partiality with God and he plays no favorites because God doesn't play favorites either God's fairness is the truth that Paul ends up with here being submitting to one another in the fear of God spirit filled believers whether husbands or wives parents or children employers or employees are to be mutually submissive why because they are equally loved and are to be mutually submissive because they are equally loved, equally cared for, and equally submissive to their master and their savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The section closes regarding being filled with the Spirit. 
If we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we're joyful, thankful, and submissive, then we can enjoy harmony in the relationships of life as we live and we work with other Christians. And you know what? We'll also find it easier to work with and witness to unbelievers who might disagree with us. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And Jesus said love is the greatest bond of perfection. Love is the super glue that holds us together. It's the super glue in the world. It's the perfect super glue for holding relationships together. The love of Jesus Christ. It, it, it heals all things. It heals all wounds. But it's the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the, the letters that, that these, these anointed men, these spirit-filled men wrote to the church, Lord, to give us instruction, Father. It's all about being submissive to Christ, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done. We thank you for what you've given us, Father. We thank you for your grace and your mercies, Lord. And we know that if we live in this world, it is, not, it is not fair. It is not just. It doesn't always care for us, God. But we know that you do, Lord. And that you died to give us life. And you left us the word of God. You've given us the resource of prayer and the instruction of the word of God. Therefore, we can do all things through Christ because he strengthened us through these things. So, Father, help us to be all that we are called to be, God, because we can be. Our sufficiency is in you, and we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, at this time, we're going to go right into communion. Uh, does anybody not have their communion, their elements? If you do, raise your hand, and we'll get one out to you. Does everybody have their uh, communion elements? Okay, it, it appears that, that they do. All right. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. God says, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. These are great words that God spoke here. Walk before me. When a, when a person walks before someone, it means they're walking in the sight of that person. And that's what God is saying here. That's the picture he gives here. It means to walk with a, a continual awareness of God seeing all that one does. It means to be God conscious. It means to be aware of his presence. To walk and to live consistently before me. He says to be perfect, that is blameless, wholehearted, complete. It clearly means realize my presence. God says realize my presence. And then in everyday life, in ordinary conversation, continue to walk under a sense of it. To walk under a sense of knowing his presence is with you. Walking in a serious, dedicated, holy, heartfelt, consecrated, Christ-like awareness of God's presence. But he meant even more than that when he said, walk before me. 
It also means delight in my company. When was the last time you were in his company? When was the last time you were aware of his presence with you? When was the last time you were aware that you delighted in his company? I love what David said in Psalm 84 too. He said, oh, how lovely is your tabernacle. He loved going to the tabernacle. But next he says, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. You see, it wasn't the beauty of the church and all the latest gadgets, whatever they had back in David's day. He loved going there because the, the, the living God met him there. He wanted to be in the presence of the living God. And I love that. My heart is in my flesh cries out for the living God. When was the last time our hearts cried out for the living God? True believers find their greatest joy when they're in communion and fellowship with the living God. The psalmist said in Psalm 16, 8, You will show me the path of life, and in your presence is the fullness of joy. Notice, in your presence. And you know what's neat about that? I can, I can be in his presence anywhere. I don't have to be in a building. In his presence is my fullness of joy. The path of life that he shows us on earth today, it's going to end with even, with even a greater life when we enter heaven, eternal life. Then we shall be in his presence and we will experience the fullness of his joy and pleasure forevermore. The two on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 3 said, did not our heart burn within us? When was the last time you had that kind of heart burn and it wasn't something you ate? Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us? By the way, he said, and while he opened to us the scriptures. It was while Jesus talked to the two on the road to Emmaus as much as it was the written word of God. God speaks to us, you know, through that still small voice and he speaks to us through the word of God. Jesus graciously walked with the two on the road to Emmaus. And their burning heart caused great zeal and action in their lives. And if we want inspired action and we want inspired service, we need to be fired up for God. Not being lukewarm like Jesus said to the church of Ephesus in Revelation. And he regarded being, being lukewarm as you left your first love. Wasn't it that they didn't, you know, uh, didn't know the word or weren't good at it? They left. They ignored their first love. Luke tells the story further that they broke bread together. Jesus and the two on the road to Emmaus. They broke bread together, referring to a, a, a regular meal. Jesus revealed himself to them during a common meal, and that's often the way he works. We need to learn to see him in every day, in the everyday things of life. Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Do you look forward to being with Jesus in glory? Do you look forward to being with him any moment now because the way things are going, we could be leaving here real quick. As a Christian, I've been hearing that for 30 years. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And I believed it. And man, more than ever this morning, as we are on the verge 
And he could take us out of here before we even finish this communion. But are you ready? Are you looking forward to it? Is he the joy of your life today? Because if he isn't, when will you be prepared to enjoy him for all eternity? So as we partake in communion, as the two on the road to Emmaus, you know, ate a meal with Jesus and, it, and they're just, their hearts burned and they heard his word, we're going to have a meal with Jesus too right now. And it's called communion. Holy communion. And Jesus said, when you eat the bread and you drink the cup, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Twice. And before we partake of the cup and, 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 the, and the bread, we're going to have a, a, a time of worship right now and just to, to take the time to remember him, to reflect. Am I, does he walk before me? Am I, do I have a conscious awareness of his presence around me all the time? Do I have that fellowship with him? Is he my Lord? Is he my Savior? Is he my Master? So again, as we, hear, as we listen to this song, just take a time of reflection and, you know, if you need to make amends and you need to re, re, you know, rekindle that relationship, renew that relationship, restore it, whatever the need might be, do it you know, during this time before we take the bread and the cup.